welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I welcome back Dr. Chris, Christopher Leon Harrison, PhD. He's a professor of political science at Northern Arizona University, and on the show we discuss geopolitics, genocide, international law and order, and the election of 2024. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever! Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, MC Squared. So, yeah, this is our second go-round. Our first one, we kind of uh, prioritized your your um, work, genocidal conscription. I'd like to go get back to that at some point. But uh, why don't we talk about your day job? So you are a professor. Uh, are you in the, the Department of uh, Politics and International Affairs, right, with uh, Northern Arizona University? That's your day job? That's right. Yep. Yep. I uh, also teach for Arizona State University. I am based up in northern uh, Arizona near the Grand Canyon. And so uh, NAU, as it's called, Northern Arizona University, is the third largest university of the state. And there's a lot of crossover, a lot of cooperation across the the state. Uh, So, yeah, I teach politics there. I, I tend to have three or four classes going on at once. Right now I've got four classes. So it's pretty intense workload and hundreds of students constantly uh, coming through the system, which is great to see. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about um, how the job goes and what the important factors are that uh, we should all be aware of at this point in time after COVID in particular. Are you uh, are you on a tenure track or non-tenure? No, so I'm career track, which is the shift that's happening right now and inside the industry. Tenure track has tended to become uh, actually somewhat uh, more difficult to attain, but also a little bit um, rigid and narrow in many ways for a lot of people. So you tend to essentially follow a certain research track where there is funding, where there's money already in the system. And because of the shift from research focused university to tuition based system, it's actually a little bit more stable and a little bit more of a reliable job to go and be a good teacher rather than just a good researcher, but not necessarily so much of a good teacher. Uh, So NAU is um, a teaching institute. It's actually originally founded as the teaching 
college for Arizona. So it was the place where teachers went to train to be teachers uh, back in the day. And it's really a, a first generation push. Lots of non-traditional students, lots of first time out students uh, in their families coming through and getting a higher education degree of some kind. So that's that's the day job. That's the kind of main body, the cohort of the students that I teach. Uh, and and um, yeah, so I, I'm interested to explore some of those ideas with you. The the real shift between tenure track and non tenure track is um, who who are you serving essentially? Who's the it, to some degree a client? Even you can think of it that way. Uh, is it the general population of the state and the region? So you know we get a lot of kind of you know, students from California into northern Arizona as well. Um, or now, is I, it? I guess the goal would be too, to keep those students right to keep those students there. After their education, yeah. they don't want a brain drain, right? If it's a, if it's an institution receiving state funds, they don't want to educate people that are coming for a few years and then jetting onward else, you know, somewhere else for their career. So I guess the goal would be to educate, especially you know, these state funded institutions, to educate the region and then ensure that those professionals stay in the region after graduation, right? To a degree, I mean, you know, as, as long as there are. Um... The, the aim, generally speaking, is, you know, well-informed American citizen uh, that is then getting on some kind of career track and then paying into the system of taxes. Um, but, yeah, was, you know, just just that, that shift between very narrow, kind of cliquey, client-based scholarship where, um, you know, we're all aware of it in the industry is essentially, uh, uh, it might sound a bit odd to say in the word industry with higher education, but that, that really is how it works in many ways um where the the you know the one percenters the ivy leagues they're going to take care of themselves right they're going to continue to you know push certain types of reports because that's where the think tanks are um essentially hoping that the scholars will create these outcomes it, it isn't necessarily as objective as you might hope very often uh and so um the flip side of that is Teach people, have their views respected, bring them along incrementally, keep them in the system so they actually get their degrees rather than just burning out and going off somewhere else. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it is a good system that we're starting to see flourish in the post-COVID environment. Much, much better than even when I was a student, you know, um, which wasn't all that long ago, you know, Obama years, but even so, um, you know, really just like outdated systems and programs and uh, structures. And that's certainly still there. Um, it's certainly a work in progress. But in terms of, you know, kind of frontline service and teaching students that have tended not, never to be able to access higher education, you know, we, we started we'll to see that access. So Say it, it again. Let's talk about that access. So World War II, the GI Bill, um, it made access to higher education uh, affordable for all the GIs returning from Europe in the Pacific theater. Um, I think the, at that point in time, the United States was revolutionizing the world in affordable um, public education. At that time, tax dollars uh, funded the majority of the bills for colleges and universities, but as you had mentioned, it's been switched. The burden now is shifted to the consumers of education, to the students. 
So now it's not uncommon to see a hundred thousand, two hundred, maybe even three hundred thousand dollars of debt. You know, to get if you're going maybe the the professional route, getting a law degree, a medical degree, um, you know, an, an advanced degree. So the burden has shifted on the onto consumers. At one point in time, you know, the American dream was you know, you can afford to put your kids through college, get a high paying job, one day you retire. But the last fifty or so years, you know, there's been a lot of uh, I don't know, maybe empty promises with people going into um, education. A lot of people were kind of, um, I think I, I've read some stuff, especially with, with COVID and stuff, a lot of people were going different tracks, you know, just getting right out into the workforce. Um, I think, you know, the demand for college, at least the, the recent stuff that I've read, is, is going down a little bit. Um, you know, there's there's people concerned uh, about being, being saddled with debt um, for life. So what, what have you kind of noticed? I mean, uh, in your experience here, I think in Europe, right, there's there's a lot more free or nearly free uh, colleges and higher education institutions available for students. In the United States, there's lots of opportunities and access, but only if you can afford it. I I would actually um, suggest it looks where you it, it, it depends on where you're looking when it comes to access, when it comes to student loans. Uh, and also the idea of, you know, kind of fully socialized forms of education elsewhere in the world. Those tend to be places that don't have a giant security bill to constantly pay. You know, the priorities that the United States um, really took charge of from the 1950s on that kind of golden era, if you like, of, uh, um, you know, everyone having a job pretty much for life. Um, even the GI Bill, though, you know, that wasn't as inclusive as we might want to imagine or, or remember. A lot of people were denied based on race. A lot of people were not informed on what their actual um, rights were when it came back, uh, when it came to uh, returning back to civilian life. But then after globalization really started to kick in and accelerate in 60s, 70s and onwards, then you're getting the shift that you're talking about, where it's tuition-based. It's tuition-based, it's tax allocation-based. Arizona is constantly one of the lowest ranked in terms of the funding allocated for K-12 and public public education in the U.S. It's, it's often within the 45 to 50 on the list and um, of, of states funding. And so you have other places where funding is better uh, but then the tax rate goes up, right? The tax system then uh, incurs differences. So we've got a few different topics going on at the same time um, in terms of how uh, valid, how useful a college education is. In my background, I grew up in the 80s in Britain and I couldn't get a student loan. I couldn't get the things that you'd want to see in place for people who were working class. And, you know, I, I teach my students pauper class. I'm of the pauper class in my background. It, there's no prop property. There's no, you're not even in the system to be able to get a loan. There's no idea of having a home. Uh, never mind inheritance passed down through generations. Uh, most of my family back in Britain don't have cars or, you know, private property to that degree because the economy has been built in this class structure for so many centuries. You know, there's still a king. It's that outdated system. So um, it is actually very kind of um, 
niche in terms of who gets those freebies, who gets that access to the free education and the opportunities. Um, now and again, depending on who's in the government, there will be greater access and some loans. But even then, you still have to qualify. You still have to have the. Um, you actually be have to have uh, a record of credit. You have to be in the credit system. Um, and so there's a lot of people who are um, kind of on the outskirt, uh, the outcast um, elements of societies in Western post-industrial service economies. And so, you know, going back to the question of, you know, the valid the the validity of getting a college college education, I was able to get um, out of manual labor, being a cook, doing eight to twelve hour shifts, starting at four thirty in the morning, back in Florida. I was a cook in England as well, and you know, I wanted to break away from the subsistence earnings, the the ability to put some money away to have some savings to invest to be able to work more and also earn more and and college i i genuinely do believe that is still the way it works the idea of investing and saddling yourself with debt you have to question whether that's um a, a genuine career uh future when it comes to which degree you get absolutely there's going to be things that are more so you know, traditional liberal arts forming a mature outlook in the world versus, you know, some kind of highly uh, competitive, maybe a technical degree, maybe a science engineering degree. For political scientists, the, the field I teach, it is much more so to do with nonprofits, uh, policy, uh, getting into one of the parties, working with them, fundraising humanitarian efforts, nonprofit, international organizations. So there's a gamut of different kind of um, gaps that you might think government should take care of, but often they don't. Uh, and so funnily enough, that's kind of where poli-sci fits. And, um, and, and so, yeah, in the, in the event that you're taking on debt, it has to be um, assessed in terms of well, what else is out there, what's available for, for people who are not from a family that has college background, college experience, degrees, careers, a certain threshold in the income. Um, I want to say it's I see the 64,000 or somewhere around there, at least the last time I looked, it might have gone up a, a little bit in recent years. But if you're from a, a family household under 60, 64,000, then you can get your first two years covered. Um, and, in and Arizona on, or the United States? Yeah, in Arizona. So it's it's state level and it's across various states. Um, and, and I might be off by a few thousand dollars here and there for Arizona, but it's pretty much that ballpark. And so, um, you know, it, it, it is a matter of getting to um, getting aware of what the opportunities are that are out there. And if you if you're looking at a degree that's three hundred thousand or or more debt for getting through, then you're getting into the the long term careers that sure you got to make it, you got to get the job, you got to you know pay your dues and bide your time and uh, work the ladder a little bit. But you, you talk about corporate jobs where they're making two two to three hundred a year, you know two to three hundred thousand a year in those jobs. 
And so, um, and they do that, exist. That also gets yes. you institutionalized. Though. So let's say, for example, someone <laughs> wanted to go and become an environmental lawyer, right? The, the environment, unfortunately, is, um, you know, they're not recruiting the, uh, the, uh, the highest paid lawyers, you know, out of law school and whatnot, because, um, you know, the corporations trash the planet. And those are, you know, the, the corporations are also the, the uh, you know, the institutions that are able to afford, you know, those kind of high powered lawyers and whatnot. So maybe your passion was to get an environmental law and you want to protect the commons and, you know, the, the beautiful planet that we have and whatnot. And you're like, hey, you know, maybe I'll just uh, maybe I'll just defend these corporations. You know, I, I, I don't agree with what I'm doing and whatnot, but, uh, you know, I'm just going to pay off my student loans. And then once I'm done, you know, I'm going to go what I what I set out to do, which is be an environmental lawyer and, you know, help the the animals and the wildlife and the planet that we live on. And that's, that's why I'm doing it. So, you know, maybe you start out that way, but if you're saddled with two, $300,000 of debt and you make these big salaries and maybe after 10 years or so, you know, you're used to these big salaries and maybe you get institutionalized and then, you know, you're, you're midway through your life and you're in your career. And then all of a sudden you forget about your goals, your dreams, your aspirations, what you sought out to do. So I think this what I think the student loan debt is, it's not economics, it's it's to instill discipline, it's to limit choices, it's to limit freedoms. Once you're part of the system and indoctrinated and saddled with this you know, life-changing, sometimes potentially a lifetime of debt, um, it works as a disciplinary tool to you know, kind of force you within the system and force you into the capitalist machine as a cog in the wheel, if you will. I know I'm getting political and uh, maybe... Uh, you know, I'm obviously a little bit biased here, but my thought of education, it should be for everyone. I don't think that education should only be for elites. When I'm, when I'm, I think, so I think it's a given that K through 12 is for everyone. You know, I think that that is a, it's a great thing. But for some reason, you know, if you talk about higher education here in the United States and it should be free for everyone, you know, they look at you like you're the ghost of Karl Marx. But I actually truly believe that. I think if you are interested in a subject, whether that's liberal arts or philosophy or history, maybe something that uh, isn't high paying, I still think it should be. I think these are important things to study. I think these are very interesting subjects. My favorite stuff to study since post-college and whatnot is, is philosophy. Um, I, I didn't do it in college because it's tough to get a job, I guess, unless you want to go into uh, academia. Certainly with a four-year degree in philosophy, you're going to struggle probably to at least to find your find your first job. But I think higher education should be for everyone, people that are interested in it, people that want to pursue it. I don't think it should be only for elites. I think the, the common view of education here in the United States, at least from, from elites' perspective, is you know, maybe the top 10% or, or whatever, those are our college elites, you know, maybe a little bit more than that, give or take. But for the rest of the population, the 90% or so, you know, education just should just be vocational training, you know, learn to do a job, you know, they don't need to be creative, they just need to be obedient, they just need to be subservient, fit into uh, the systems, a cog in the capitalist machine, if you will. And I also think like economics, that entire field um, kind of, you know, Sets the, sets the framework for how society is structured, you know, and if, if you go to college and, you know, you want to major in something that you're not going to get a high paying job, well, then that's, that's wasteful, you know, but I think, I think art is an awesome thing for society. And I think that, you know, there should be a greater emphasis on degrees that maybe, you know, maybe you're, they're not the most, um, they're not as needed as let's say a surgeon or a nurse or something. But I think art is very important for society, especially a civilized society, but in people in economics and whatnot, the dogma is like, um, you know, 
the, the majority of the population, we don't need them to be questioning everything. We don't need them to be high, you know, high-end thinkers and, you know, philosophizers. We don't need the next Einstein. All we need is, you know, obedient, um, you know, workers to serve a purpose, to clean our floors or to dig holes or whatever else. And, um, and, and unfortunately, you know, they, they, they come up with terms like unskilled worker, but that's actually 70% of the workforce. So I just think that there's like an ideology around education, especially higher education, and, um, you know, just the educational process. I think it should be for everyone, not just elites, but unfortunately here in America, I think a lot of people will take the uh, alternative route where it's just for, you know, the, the, the top, you know, thinkers and uh, you know, the people that can afford it or, or whatnot. And, uh, I don't think it should be that way. And I think, um, again, liberal arts, philosophy, history, this, this kind of stuff too. Uh, I think it should be, you know, I think it's an important part of society. You know, I think just learning, you know, even if it's a subject matter, that's not high paying doesn't necessarily mean it's not important. You know what I mean? I sure do. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're using the, the language of, uh, Antonio Gramsci. And the idea of yeah, Gromsky. I got his book over here. I got the prison, the prison right. notebook. So he's, he came up with yeah. the cultural hegemony. I think that was his. That's uh, it. His exactly. Yeah. yeah, the elites will shape uh, ways in which everyone else will fall in line, and uh, the benefits are to obey, and the discipline is uh, the object lesson that's made out of people who fight back. Uh, and Gromsky so, was oh, an anarchist, and so am I. <laughs> so our right? political philosophy. I, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, and he he has a, a better military record than uh, Benito Mussolini, who was really? something something of a, a a similar era. But uh, Mussolini was a draft dodger, funnily enough, during World War One, uh, and Gramsci was um, put in prison because of his beliefs and uh, held true to them, but. Um, just yeah, to draw the George comparison, w. Bush. I think Trump was a draft dodger. Clinton was a draft dodger. Wasn't George W. Bush too? I think a lot of these people. Uh, I'm not sure about W. I mean, uh, yeah, they they did the old. old I think he went to the reserves. Trump I think he, he he found a way to go to the uh, reserves or okay. like that to get around. I think it was an educational deferment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's often how the the education system does play out in this way as well. Um, but but the, the, then the opposite of that is that you use critical thinking and you do challenge the the status quo of. Uh, these um, highly destructive elites, and I would absolutely guarantee, uh, certainly uh, agree with the position that we have seen elites run amok since globalization opened up. And, and pick your date. You know, is it, are we talking about imperialism back in the day, colonialism? We've had a couple of centuries each of those, and then a century of both of those. Then we got the you know the world wars and the cold war. And now, if you want to take globalization in a kind of modern technological frame, then yeah, seventies, eighties onwards. Um, but we've got um, you know elites who are highly effective in executing cultural hegemony over multiple cultures, over Very multiple effective. populations. And this is not new. This is something that's been going on. I mean, elites. Write history. The intellectuals write history. So Chomsky, my favorite uh, intellectual, has a book on it. Uh, it's called The Responsibility of Intellectuals. And his um, thesis is the responsibility of intellectuals is to speak the truth and to call out lies when you see them. And I agree with that. I think that that's what should be done. Unfortunately, I don't think that that is the way 
most uh, intellectuals, maybe they think that that's what they're doing, but I think that there's a lot of subservience and support oh, yeah. of power in the institution, in the framework, who, you know, yeah. re- you get rewarded. If you are supportive, subservient, you you stand up for power and power centers within the societies, especially in the United States, in the government, in the foreign policy, um, you know, that we are carrying out. Um, you know, there's great reward. But if you are rocking the boat, if you are exposing lies, if you're speaking truth to power, for example, what I see going on in Gaza right now, there's a there's a lot of slant towards Israel, a lot of pro Israel bias, you know, within the media and the indoctrinal system, within the educational system, there's a lot of consequences. Israel is an ally of the United States. It's a uh, it's an ally because it provides strategic um, opportunity for the United States to control the world's oil supply, and it's basically a military outpost giving the United States a foothold uh, in the Middle East. That's the way I see it. Um, but you know, you get a lot of um, you get a lot of maybe pushback. You get a lot of uh, you know, even repression, possibly a lot of consequences for speaking truth uh, and what's going on in Gaza. I just want to bring up um, uh, genocide. So that was one of your, um, I guess that was your PhD thesis, right? The genocidal conscription. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit. Uh, and I think genocide is a very polarizing word. It's a kind of propagandized term. It can definitely be insensitive, especially when you use it in, uh, you know, in description of what's going on. Uh, I think a lot of people, I think Lula just said uh, the president uh, in Brazil, um, who Israel called him persona non grata for saying this, but he compared um, the, uh, the genocide, at least as I see it going on in Gaza right now, he called it a holocaust and compared it to the Holocaust in Europe, you know, in the, uh, you know, what happened in the 30s and 40s, um, you know, Nazi Germany and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of pushback from Israel and, you know, allied power centers uh, of Israel. Um, but I kind of agree with Lula in, in his um, framing of it. I mean, it's certainly not on the scale um, of the Holocaust and, and the, you know, genocide that went on there. But this is no small matter. I mean, there's, I think, 13,000 children I saw uh, since October 7th and prior to October 7th with that, which was that needless, uh, you know, terrorist strike that I did not condone by Hamas killing innocent citizens in Israel. But prior to that, uh, I think it was the most, um, I think the, uh, the, the most violent, uh, I think more deaths, um, I think more, more, um, I think it was the most violent era in Gaza in history or something like that. And I think, I think something like a couple, two or three kids, were dying per week even before that. So, anyways, it was bad, and it did not start October 7th. I could be getting some of my figures wrong, but it was a very violent year leading up to and before October 7th. So, I, I kind of wanted to wait to bring this up, but hey, why not? Let's just get it all out there. What do you think about the, you know, the Gaza, the Israel stuff, and then what do you think about my, uh, you know, analysis of the term genocide? I mean, it can be a very polarizing um, word, you know, a propagandized term. I mean, you use it to win an argument, you know what I mean? And sometimes, especially, you know, in the Holocaust and in the Europe's and in the 1940s and whatnot, it can be insensitive to people like the Jewish people that, um, experienced that, you know, this massive killing on the scale that no one has ever seen before. Um, so what say you, I know I said a lot there. No, I definitely hear you. So, I mean, I studied this for several years. Uh, and I say this, the blurred line between war and genocide. Uh, it, it's There's more than one blurred line. 
there is the question of who's the target, what's the intent, what's the goal, and at what point do you move from warfare to genocidal war, and then above and beyond that, ah, genocide. And uh, it sounds very similar, but they're actually very different in the terminologies. Um, and so let's go into uh, where I started the idea of war, highly destructive war, targeting civilians, using them as a way to de, um, how would you put it? The point of uh, not having the ability to maintain the material production to stay in the war. Uh, and this comes from a, a theorist back in the day who was a soldier, Karl von Clausewitz. And this guy is the kind of fa founding father of modern warfare. Now, why am I bothering to start with all that? Because in his work where every single Western and every ally and proxy of Western militaries since the 1820s onwards, when he came up with this idea, after sitting back and realizing what Napoleon had been doing for a couple of decades, he realized that... Did you that, see that movie, by the way? I thought it was okay. It wasn't bad. It, it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a little bit too much of the drama there between the two of them. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. I, uh, I love those historical part, pieces yeah. for the um, for the uniforms and the settings and whatnot. But yeah, the, I, I think it could have been about, uh, I know, don't know, it, 90 minutes short. I heard, it, I heard it was one of Stanley Kubrick's dreams to make that movie. And then he could never get around to it. Cause, yeah. So that's what, if you imagine that could have been a Kubrick movie, right? yeah. that would have been amazing. Uh, but yeah, you know, the, the, the concept of uh, shutting people down, shutting societies down to the point where they can no longer fight the war. And that's above and beyond just military versus military. Total is getting right? into isn't the territories. This, is this an Say idea? it again. Total war? Is it, isn't this something that came... Eventually, right it became total war. World War II? Yeah. Just, after, right? after generals um, had practiced and studied Clausewitz for about 40, 50, 60 years, they, they then have the industrial weaponry to really ramp up the total war. So we, we can go to Dresden, right? It was a... It was a uh, this, is, this is World War II... Um, this was basically a, a town completely destroyed by the Allies um, bombing, and the idea was, yeah. hey, well, the nuclear weapons against the Japanese. That, the, that's that. Yeah, this deal is, was these people are con contributing to the war effort, right? They're in factories. They're contributing yeah. to the Nazi war effort. So, hey, these are not the non-combatants. Yeah. So these are people that we're going to target. But in reality, I think that's war crime, right? At least I think so. Once, yes, once you get to the point where you can distinguish the difference between civilians fleeing for their lives that are not involved in assisting some type of productive capacity for the enemy, then yes, then you're leading into these war crimes. I and think then it's a little bit of a gray area, though. If I'm genocide. getting, if I'm in Nazi Germany right now, oh, can you imagine? Oh, in of a course, right. factory, and I'm just trying right. to stay alive, feed my family. Right. And I get bombed, yeah. like, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a Nazi. I'm just trying to stay alive. I'm just trying to feed my family. I'm just trying to work my normal day. And the Japanese in their cities that were bombed sure. with nuclear weapons, no right? Question. I mean, you know, no question. So, so the, so the, the rules of war have allowed this and have permitted this uh, highly destructive forms of you know if you want to say a burnt offering a sacrificial offering that kind of uh, biblical term of what a holocaust would be people have described the major battles in world war one as holocausts 
because of just the absolute carnage that took place. And they were the combatants. They were the soldiers. Um, and so the issue as to how can we reform the rules of war, the international norms and standards by which states then actually proceed in these conflicts, I think that's where the work has to be done. And it, it is a, a, a problem that we haven't really um, had yeah, much attention addressed. on. Yeah, we've not right. We haven't seriously addressed it since the end of World War Two, when when it was going into the developing countries, the low income countries, the lower income countries, and now it's on. Say it again. The global south. Yeah, there you go. Right, precisely. And so now it's entering into the global north again, to the point where we're seeing it. You know, it's not just kind of um, somewhat derogatory, arrogant perceptions of backward countries being involved, right? So even in the 1990s with the former Yugoslavia, that was considered, well, they're rural. They don't know what to do, right? There was this like very um, snobbish kind of spin on on the the conflicts involved in these with these groups. Um, but once, bit, once blood hits the ground, right? Once bloodshed has happened, it's very difficult to pull back from that point. And you're going to have people piling in on all sorts of sites. Then the question is, uh, how can we distinguish between civilians who are the victims of a variety of different crimes and civilians who are somehow unfortunately placed in the gray zone of the um, very untasteful phrase of collateral damage? And then um, the flip side of guerrilla warfare tactics, where you have people who are posing as civilians, but they're actually combatants. So there's a whole range of who knows what in terms of what's going on. Um, and, and then we get into the kind of legal debates amongst states as to these charges and claims. I got I got so a quote. We, Is this Axel Rose? Like, what's so civil about war anyways? <laughs> Did he say that in that song? Anyways, go ahead, continue. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Uh, and so now, now it's like um, you know, diplomatic sanctions, carrot and stick time between these powers, where you know Israel is charged, or, or I should say, uh, South Africa has claimed Israel committing genocide. The ICJ uh, asking Israel to demonstrate how it hasn't, and defending its position. And, and the, the, the crux of that case that was decided, well, the preliminary um, uh, finding was given last month in January, where uh, there was no ceasefire, as so many people in the West have asked for and gone on the streets for. And also um, the ICJ gave Israel a month to provide evidence countering it, South Africa's claims. So that really shows you that the the ICJ, like a lot of the UN institutions, are muddled and are not necessarily fully able to step in and enforce much of anything, right? The, the, the end result, even against Russia, where they found some criminal activity but also haven't 
gone so far as to agree with Ukraine in terms of charges of genocide. Well, they're a little more than symbolic, right? And unfortunately, I'd love it if the world were run by international law and things we took seriously would be like human rights and civil rights and, you know, equality, all that kind of stuff, fairness. But unfortunately, uh, the world is run by force. The United States has the world's strongest, most violent military in world history. Therefore, the United States is the most um, powerful nation ever to exist. Uh, And we're seeing what's going on in um, Russia and Ukraine, too. Um, You know, Putin, uh, you know, has decided that, you know, he's going to invade Ukraine. This has been going on for, what, almost two years now, something like that. Um, you know, he could have easily said, hey, you know, I'm going to make a case to the international court that, uh, you know, this territory with its, um, you know, as much like you saw in the, the Tucker interview, uh, we have this historical claim to the Ukraine and whatnot. Um, but of course, you know, Putin didn't take an international court or put it up for vote. He invaded with an army because the world is still run by force. It's been run by force during since the time of Genghis Khan, and not really much has changed. Um, we have elites and intellectuals trying to paint a very, um, you know, pretty picture for us about maybe what's going on in um, in Gaza. There's even like celebrities writing books about, you know, ch- ch- why why these children have to die for Israel and whatnot. But I definitely don't think that one Holocaust, uh, you know, justifies another. Um, but I, I love the idea of you know a, a world run by um, international law and order and you know, we have, um, you know, democratically elected um, committees that vote on these issues. But um, the way it is, um, you know, Israel is a client state of the United States. Uh, so therefore, it inherits rights of the United States. So in the Security Council, the United States has a veto. If uh, the United States doesn't want uh, something to go in a UN vote, it votes against it and it disappears. It never happened. So um, I think the, one of the reasons that there's no teeth to the International Court of Justice is because, um, you know, Israel is being backed by the most powerful, richest, most violent state the world has ever seen in the United States. So uh, I'd love, you know, I think it'd be a great thing to have some utopian world order run by, you know, law and, you know, things like um, the International Declaration of Human Rights. But that's not the world we live in, unfortunately, right now. But I, I think a great, I think a better idea would be, why don't we give peace a chance? You know, I've read stuff like, oh, this is the most peaceful time in history. Perhaps you can comment on that, but not the way that I see it. I mean, ask an Af- someone in Afghanistan or an Iraqi or, um, you know, uh, Vietnamese um, person uh, in, in the uh, 20 years or so we'd spent ravaging Indochina or we can go to Cambodia. Uh, or Laos, or maybe the terror wars, the Reagan terror wars in South America. So I've read stuff like, oh, this is the most peaceful time in history post-World War II. But I don't know if you look at the United States' track record. I'm not so sure I agree with that. No, I don't agree with that. There was a couple of years where things were a little less violent. Uh, in the early 90s, immediately following the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then it really uh, has just happened over and over again. And and it, and it shows the lack of security at the global level. So I, I'm not making the case that the ICJ would be able to do much of anything beyond sanctioning here, there, or anywhere in particular. What kind of um, sanctions? Would there be some teeth to these sanctions? When you say sanctions, what kind of like economic sanctions? Or what do you mean yeah, by sanctions? It's, it's economic sanctions. It's making sure that people don't travel. If they travel to certain places, then they may be placed under arrest like they did with Putin. 
So it's, it's restricting some elements of movement. Um, but what that does is it essentially then create a, a different clique of states that are outside of the jurisdiction of the ICJ. So it doesn't really do much if you don't have the enforcement arm, right? In every country, you've got some kind of judicial process. You've got the legislators that make the laws. And then you've got the enforcers, whether that's police or military or whoever. And without the, as unfortunate as it sounds, you're going to need some kind of coalition of global police slash military to do much of anything when it comes to enforcing the rule of international law of warfare, as well as avoiding various international crimes. Uh, so and enforcing any kind of hope for uh, a world court or, or however they want to frame themselves. But no, I mean, they're agreements, right? If you sign in on these agreements, then you're in those clubs. And if you don't, then you're not in those clubs, but you're in other clubs, right? The non-aligned movement is the flip side to the United Nations that came about in the global south in the 60s and onwards. And it's the second largest collection of uh states that have some kind of cooperation and i can tell you it's almost never taught at grad level poli sci never mind uh, undergrad level and the reason why is because it shows um how the west isn't the be all and end all and people are going to do their things and, and political uh live their political life and run their governments as they see fit in all sorts of different ways that have got nothing to do with the west or the united states and the sooner the West gets, uh, you know, caught up on that part of how pretty much irrelevant, right? It, it may well be that it's the most powerful, there's the most funding, there's the weapons. It's an industry. They're, they're the, the number one arms seller in the world. As the United right? States, we're involved in, I think, over half of uh, any weapons deals. If there's a weapon sold in the world, chances are if you flip a coin, the United States is going to be involved. And so uh, in my take on it, on, on how to address the, the issues between various states, is genuinely speaking, individuals get like the, the whole idea of the, you know, um, it, it is going to be a long time before the United States is invaded because behind every blade of grass, there's a private gun owner, right? That concept it, it, it really runs deep in a lot of communities and a lot of cultures and in a lot of countries, but in places that have uh, insisted that someone else is going to take care of security, someone else is going to uh, do the job of protecting you and yours and your community, they are the soft targets. And that is often where things will rapidly fall apart because it is, uh, it's just one line of defense. You can think of it that way. So, um, while, are you, are you, you know, saying that guns are the answer? Is that what you're saying? Arm more individuals? Self-defense. Self-defense is the answer. You can't get peace because of people sitting behind around the campfire singing Kambaya. You, you have a campsite full of weapons, <laughs> and no one is going to encroach on that campsite anytime soon because everyone is, is tooled and trained properly. So Switzerland, right? Switzerland is kind of like the, the ridiculous center yeah sure they've got some physical defenses with their mountains other places are mountains they get conquered all the time so what's the difference between switzerland being stuck between france italy and uh, germany with so many millions of people killed soldiers and civilians over the last century how come that switzerland has been doing kind of okay well for 300 years they've insisted that every household gets trained in self-defense and knows how to use 
the basic uh, weapons that are available at the time. And I it's do not think, though, that the United States has a major gun problem. Just pick up a newspaper any day. Oh, you know, there's mass shootings and whatnot. Maybe the biggest issue solution is yeah, lack training. Perhaps it's the lack of training. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's that it's that aspect. You know, I mean, I I wasn't around in the United States in the fifties. I hear stories now and again of people like how boggling. I don't know. Maybe you've heard this idea. There was there's the rifle club at the local high school back in the 50s. How crazy does that? People go out and they train and they clean and they shoot and they target practice and there are rifles in the school and it's the, the high schoolers, right? It, that just seems very unusual to say these days. Um, but, but the other side of that is if you have the capacity of self-defense in any way, that's a little bit better than not. And so that's kind of the point I'm making at the individual level and that then builds into communities that you know, take the Yazidis, right? Take the Kurds, people who want their own countries and are subject and have been subject to genocide uh, in the Middle East. And, you know, whether it's because Turkey has been the ally of the United States or um, the civil war in Syria or the uh, major catastrophe or series of catastrophes with Iraq for the last 40 years. There's a, isn't there a major war going on in Africa right now? It's not much talked about, but there's, there's a lot of violence going on there all the time. That's rarely um, a, a key issue, you know, mentioned in American press because it's the global south and it's you know not a area of strategic importance for the United States. But there's tons of violence, civil war all the time going on. And I saw actually, uh, I forget which country it is, but I, I saw like uh, tens of thousands of children in a cobalt mine um you know it looked like it was uh you know um it looked like it was like guarded by you know people with assault rifles and what kind of stuff so unfortunately you know the the colonialism of europe and the united states and the, and the stuff that we've done to uh the continent of africa for hundreds of years it seems like it's the poorest most violent destabilized um you know place on earth and I think it's the result of, you know, Western politics. I'll quote, I think this was Gandhi, and they asked him about, uh, what do you think of Western civilization? He said, I think it'd be a good idea. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, what do you think, if you, are, we're talking all kinds of geopolitics stuff. Uh, anything, if you, I've read some stuff recently that there's some, I think there's a big war or something like that going on in, in Africa, or are you up, up on any of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's constant uh, problems in terms of, um multi-generational trauma, the issues that we've seen, uh, again, since globalization, because you've got resource-rich countries who then have governments that are corrupt and will be uh, happy to be bribed to maintain whatever informal economies, you know, by the US, illegal trade. And, yeah, Western corporations will buy those resources and or steal them outright, you know. Everywhere, right? I mean, BRICS countries too, right? ones, sure. Russia, yeah, Russia and China are in there too, doing the same things. Um, That's why I'm an anarchist, because I don't think the United States is better than any other country in history. I think all p countries are power centers. They're typically 
run by um, the power centers within the domestic society. So in the United States, you know, it's corporate elites, you know, the rich and powerful. In the Soviet Union, it was the commissar class, you know, and now it's an autocrat in Putin. But I don't think the United States is any different than any other country that's ever um, existed in history. I think part of the indoctrination that, you know, American citizens get, and I think other people, I saw Germany talks about, I think it's part of their curriculum is to discuss Western and American propaganda. I think it's a great thing. We're, we're one of the most propagandized societies in the world. Um, so it's, it's difficult for us to kind of see through that propaganda because we experience it every day. But part of what it's trying to do is, you know, create a virtuous attachment, you know, to the state. That's what state education does. You create a citizen body with a virtuous, you know, attachment to the state, to the United States. So you get, you know, myths and stories and fables about George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. You can never tell a lie, honest Abe, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then we're also supposed to um, believe that, you know, the economic system, if you work hard, you're going to, you know, move up the scale. Uh, if, you work, if you're really good at something and, and, and you work hard, you're going to get paid really well and, and that kind of stuff. So we're, we're supposed to believe that we live in a meritocracy and hard work. Is, 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 you know, usually rewarded and that kind of stuff. But I think that's all a lie. You know, I think that that is probably similar to um, educational systems and the indoctrination that students receive in North Korea or, you know, a much more totalitarian um, state. What say you about that uh, educational system, you know, trying to, I guess, you know, indoctrinate um, the youth, you know, to believe that America is great to believe that America is different, and if you know America gets involved in a war or some sort of sort of foreign policy, um, you know, conflict, it's because we're moral and we're 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 doing it for the right reasons and not because you know we want the we want to control the world's oil supply or we want to control the world's natural resources or uh, you know we we want to you know help Israel put in a canal where current day Gaza stands. You know what I mean? I, I think that um, indoctrination and propaganda it will happen in any large organization. I think if you work for a multinational corporation, you're subject to those same pressures, except that you don't have that many choices. You don't have as many choices. So it's not it's not going to lead to the, the perfect situation or outcome. But you'll be a little bit more informed of what your options may be when you have gained an education versus not having gone through those loopholes to get the degree and progress and then get into a career. And often it's, it's essentially um, figuring out um, the ways and means that people can gain access to resources and support services. And so this is a big thing that I have put into my classes personally and also just institutionally speaking, a few places here and there, NAU is one of them. Others are on the trend as well where we're not looking to filter out and weed for the top five or the top 10 of people who are essentially already ready to go. They're already got the skills. They're just going to, they are going to obey. They are going to fall in line. They're going to do what you can need to do. And then you, you've selected and, and uh, you know, identified that group of people who have been brought up uh, to do the job as advertised. Right. But then there's, the rest of society and it could be an 80 20 split it might be a little bit more um in terms of who has those skills already before they even get into the classroom versus who is learning and who is going through the process of actually educating themselves to become more informed and, and gain skills and i i do generally genuinely 
um, advocate for higher education because, well, I went through it myself. And obviously, you know, I, I see hundreds of students every year go through it in my own classes, as well as the thousands and tens of thousands graduating each year in the state of Arizona. But the um, the purpose is for people who haven't had that many opportunities to go get a job in another city, in another state, in maybe another country, have the options to really experience uh, very new and challenging uh, avenues in their lives. Also, at the same time, knowing what the difference between uh, doing something well and doing something not so well and putting your best foot forward, those types of uh, challenges and critical thinking approaches that students do gain over the years um, make a difference when they're then in society because then they can critique massive amounts of concentrations of power within their own country or elsewhere in the world. But if they haven't necessarily gone through those learning curves, then it, it may be a matter of you know not knowing what they don't know. And then what kind of a challenge would that be to the status quo? What opportunities for greater reform and improving standards of living? You mentioned cobalt mining, right? Yeah. Cobalt mining does happen in many parts of the world. It doesn't happen in the United States. No American worker at, at the present moment, at least, right, would accept those working conditions. Yeah. Try 10 years down the road, who knows what's going to happen if some you know, mineral is uh, found in Alaska as to what the worker is going to be asked to do. But therefore, hopefully, the institutions that protect people's rights and their standards of living would kick in. It wouldn't be everyone making a dime or making a dollar and corporations you know, selling out the people and the land, uh, hopefully. right? But, but the opportunity to push back against the ways and means that we've seen develop in the globalized marketplace is really important, right? I, I teach this little kind of comparative catchphrase where there's about 56, maybe 60 million English people at the high end, somewhere around there, maybe a little less. I go with 56 million English people in the world today. There's at least 62 million modern day slaves, maybe as high as 70 million modern day slaves. So therefore, there's more slaves alive today than there are English people. And that kind of comparison helps us realize, well, these what we did in the 90s, especially at the end of the Cold War, we let the bull um, out of possession. We, you know, we let the game get, get beyond us when it came to actually holding countries, militias, juntas, uh, you know, warlords in various parts of the world elsewhere take advantage of workers in deplorable circumstances, right? So while the education system... Not just let them, though. Leader, the United States is yeah. with them. If you look at, you know, the terror wars... Of the oh, for sure. That's what I'm saying, just, right? Yeah, we're, oh, yeah. we're complicit, for right. sure. Yeah, no, the war, I'm teaching it right now on my closet. The Washington Consensus set out ways to get people in debt on the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and if you did this, then we would ship your your goods out and you government official would get a nice kickback and taxes, however you want to put it, bribes as well for those who aren't necessarily uh, on the books of these trades. And the, um, the the system entirely fell apart and, and has spiraled down into the 
um, sudden awareness that Western Europe and North America was not all that up on in terms of the development of uh, politics in the 20th century. They, they, they were not very aware of just how exploitative labor is. I want to do a quick, uh, I want to do a quick plug right here. hundred percent want to echo everything you're saying. This is just to show you because this is audio only, but I have uh, Noam Chomsky, Edward Herman. I don't know if you've read it. The Washington Connection and Third World Fascism. So that's essentially, you know, uh, you know, the United States. All right. What do we got there? <laughs> the same one. There Fantastic. It is. Fantastic. I got the same book right here. <laughs> oh, great, great reading. Uh, I, I'm a big Chomsky head, so I read all the stuff. Edward Herman is great too. Um, Here's another one. If I can, if I can plug this one too, you might know this Ooh, one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's follow up. Okay, yeah, yeah. I got that one. I got volume two. Hundred of Chomsky's books. I haven't read them all. I'd love to. This is one of the yeah. best. Um, let me, if you don't mind, because we've said so much here, we got to do this again sometime. I want to talk about weeding out courses. I wanted to ask you this question. Speaking of that idea, what about, you know, I think a lot of people, I've heard that term, I don't know, dozens of times at least. I went to a large state school uh, in the United States. I, I, you know, they typically said of calculus one, of organic chemistry, of statistics 250 or something along those lines, whatever it was. These are weed out courses. So, what do you think about that idea? Weed out courses. I don't think that's a great idea. They talk about that from medical school sometimes too. Um, what do you think about the idea of standardized tests, GPAs, rating systems, assessments? Um, here in Texas, they have, um, I think, the tests that the students have to take to graduate or to move to the next level. And I think um, bonuses and even teacher pay is linked to these tests. So, you know, no child left behind. I think that that's a George W. Bush. Uh, that was his kind of educational policy. I oppose that stuff. I don't think uh, students need to be rated all the time. And I don't think that standardized tests are very valuable. What say you? I'm outside of education. I do not work for an educational institution. I'm not a teacher. You are. What say you about standardized tests, ratings, GPAs, all that kind of stuff? Weeding out stuff. No, I hear you. I think we need the variety of different tools for different parts and steps in the process. So standardized tests for getting into grad school um, is actually not as objective as you might think because it goes to a greater. So what I'm talking about is um, uh, the, the, there's an exam. I forget, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but um, essentially if you want to get into grad school you take this exam and the GRE right yes thank you yeah. very much Excellent. yeah um, and and some places are accepting it some places aren't accepting it and they don't use it anymore because it has been found that local graders who may well be in the same county and mind the same state are um, adjunct professors they're doing this as a side gig there's not particularly that much standardization actually when you look at it. And then you've got the issues of competitiveness in terms of the institution. So you've got uh, you know, a 4.0 student in one part of the country is really not that much of a 4.0 student in a different part of the country. So it, we, we hope I would suggest and, and my that, question is, would be, does yeah. a 4.0 even matter? I mean, why does it even matter? Who cares? So what? They did all the stupid assignments? Great. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, it can matter 
when you've got a range of students who are all 4.0 and then it's just kind of like the screening process for all right well who gets the award who gets to be the standard bearer as they graduate who gets to run the club for whatever the student organization is and and it's essentially you know prestige amongst amongst right. the cohort. I, my argument isn't necessarily because i think it does matter in our current society but I, my question is more like, should it matter? You know what I mean? I think it should. I think that I think that there are people who are very happy to live, uh, you know, comfortable, secure lives with their friends at the local level. And I think that is wonderful. And I am, am becoming a little bit more uh, inclined to that lifestyle having been uh, born and raised in various cities, including London, very anonymous kind of lifestyle with millions of people swimming around you. Think, think of an LA or a New York, you can imagine, right? If you've, if you've lived in a, a big city for more than a year, there becomes a point at which no one's really held to much account for their personal behavior, their actions. And you can, you know, you, you're gonna treat your friends with respect and your loved ones and your family, but other than that, people on the street, like you, it's like ugh, humans, and and it's this kind of dehumanizing factor that goes on in big cities. But in in local politics and local communities, you can't do that kind of thing because you are held accountable. And um, I think that we kind of need to go back to some of those aspects. I think we become overly urbanized in many ways. The idea of um, you know living out your life in a, a, a somewhat anonymous uh, range of city life interactions uh, you can explore and you can experience all sorts of different world uh, cultures interactions arts humanities food uh, lifestyles entertainment all of that's wonderful but it's also americanized it's also kind of a, an abstract form of what the origin was wherever the various parts of the community were originally from. Um, and so what I'm um, arguing here uh, in terms of why it matters, if you are going to push yourself to the 4.0, if you are going to push yourself to do all these various things in college and really make yourself stand out there, then you're essentially putting yourself up for uh, leading larger groups of people. And it is this kind of weird. Ah, see, us anarchists. Hold on a minute, us anarchists. We don't like that kind of word, leader. No, right. It is the hierarchy. Exactly. We don't like that kind of stuff. Uh Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's picking out leaders. That's right. To to go run organization X or party Z or whatever the thing might be. Our battle cry. We don't need bosses. We can do this ourselves. Worker owned, worker controlled, baby. That's what I'm all about. No gods, no masters. No, I'm just messing with you. It's a little bit of an ideology, but I think you had mentioned that you're a working class intellectual, and I definitely uh, hear that and see that from you. I think we agree on quite a bit, but yeah, that leadership stuff, that hierarchy stuff, we can go back to, I want to ask one more thing about super governmental organizations like the EU and whatnot, but you had mentioned, you know, class, kings, queens, you still got King Chucky, you know, back in, back in England, I, I thought we fought against, uh, you know, monarchy a long time ago, back in 1776 or so, you know, here in the United States. Uh, but the way I see it, you know, kings and queens, they just got replaced with uh, 
corporate executives, CFOs, that kind of stuff. So we still have a very rigid hierarchy here. So what say you, though? You, you had mentioned, uh, you know, about the the monarchy back in your homeland, kings and queens and the class system, uh, systems of caste and hierarchy. So, you know, do you like them? Do you oppose them? Are they okay sometimes, but not others? What say you? No, I, I pretty much oppose them. I, I think that it's, it's a, an ironclad centuries-long grip on uh, around the throat of the working class. <laughs> Why do you still have a king there? Is it, are they just a symbolic figure, some honorary figure? Or do they have real power back in England? They they have so much power. They're kind of like that that phrase of you know the greatest lie the devil ever told is that they don't exist, where they, they, their power is far beyond symbolism. They can close the economy down. They can insist that the prime minister resigns. They can clear out the cabinet. Every MP swears an oath of allegiance to them. Every member of the police and the military swear an allegiance to them. Uh, and if you go against that allegiance, you're done, you're out. Your family is outcast, and your friends of your family very well don't look and speak to you once again, right? So it's, it's a religious... Like power. That's real oh, yeah. power. It's a, it's yeah. a religious... It, it, the, the head of the religion as well. And, and so if you're, you know, considered some kind of morally questionable or ethical, you know, your politics grinds against the ethics of the well-being of the peace of the community, then you're in trouble. You know, you're kind of excommunicated like back in the Catholic days. All right. I got to put you on the hot seat here. I got to put you on the hot seat here. Are you in favor of abolishing the, the monarchy? As this can get you in hot water. Yeah. This can get you in hot water. Oh yeah, I, I don't think it's that controversial. Oh yeah, absolutely. As head of state, they've got no business doing it. They can live in their castles and they can hunt and they can invite their friends from various parts of the world, pollute the world with their many hundreds of private jets, and then still also run the World Economic Forum and the uh, World Wildlife Fund and pretend to be in the best interests of the planet and the people as much as they want. But no, they have no place in government whatsoever, uh, or at least they should not. Um, and, but, you know, they, they have a lot of land, a lot of power, a lot of wealth, a lot of income. They still even get tax money sent their way from the regular uh, workers of Britain. A lot of stolen uh, treasure from the global south, too. I saw, like, uh, there's some, there's some like, famous diamond or something like that that was stolen from, I think, Africa, I believe. And I saw, like... Uh, I think France has one of the world's largest gold reserves, and yet they don't, I don't think they have one gold mine. I wonder where they got that gold from, you know what I mean? A lot of colonialism and neocolonialism has led to the creation of these enormous um, wealth, especially uh, the wealth of the monarchy. I think they got hundreds of billions of dollars in the crown jewel or something along those lines. So just staggering wealth and power, and, and it's amazing yeah. to me that it still, still exists today. Yeah, I mean, it's an inversion of how the politics should be. That all of that wealth could be used as a public trust fund that I would generate that. who knows how many millions of dollars. Norway's done year. something like that. They do that, I think, with their natural. Oh, gas. but they just Not take. Right. They just they just reap it and then consume it themselves. Right? Yeah. And so, but but if you could think of a, a public trust fund of. The, the priceless goods and artifacts in, uh, you know, national monuments or the mall, right? Or Washington, D.C., the list goes on. All of the treasures, right? The national public treasures. If you could imagine having that 
valued and then put in a trust fund that would derive millions of dollars each year from interest because people would essentially buy bonds that would um, mature and you would have some, you'd have to sell them off now and again, right? You don't actually make the money now and again. Um, but the way that trust funds work today, it's essentially loaning out the value of those properties that people then take loans on and pay interest back into. So you'd, you'd, you'd set the central banking system up differently to derive not funds for shareholders, but uh, essentially the capacity to fund public resources, public services, education, right? You could easily fund healthcare and education for every living human being in that process. And so we've got this inversion of, of the system right now. We know they can easily fund it. They don't want to. It's part of the class war that's going on right now. Uh, I want to, I, there's a couple things I want to get to. I'd love to stay in contact. I'd love to do this again someday. I did want to mention super governmental organizations like the EU and the International Court of Justice. We're going to have to table that discussion for another day. A lot, of, a lot of funny, silly stuff going on. Election 2024. We have two very hated candidates here in the United States in Trump and Biden. Trump is in uh, very hot legal waters. What, what do you have to say about the uh, 2024 election and how it's shaping up? I think we're going to, I think we talked about getting uh, together again, maybe closer to the election. So let's, let's do that. Uh, but what do you have to say about it? It's, uh, it's what, February? It's, uh, only, I don't know, only what, uh, let's see, it's in November, right? So we're, what, we're nine, nine, ten months away? What do you have to say about the 2024 election, uh, the two candidates that we have, the, the American political system, and the, the legal trouble that tr Trump finds himself in? Do you have anything to say in the last few minutes of the podcast on the, it seems like, you know, noteworthy topics this is an election year? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think that they're, uh, the main two parties are tremendously out of touch with the electorate in general. Uh, we have uh, a younger uh, voting base that's come through the last 10 years who were totally um, fine with some more of the progressive politics of Obama's years. You also at the same time have a nationalist trend in the United States that hasn't been listened to and hasn't been respected particularly well. So you're becoming, it's, the system is becoming more fractured and uh, a little bit, not necessarily extreme, but the representation really isn't happening in the main two parties. And people are, um, they, they will eventually go back to those two main candidates, whoever they end up being. But we're, we're in a kind of, um, gray area in terms of who they will be, who are the candidates right now. Sure, we've got people leading the idea of Biden running again, Trump running again. Who knows? It could well be that they are going to not be on the ticket one way or the other. Um, and What about just, Trump? Do you ever think he actually sees the inside of a jail cell? I can't imagine. Personally, I don't think so. I, don't think, I so think that he, he's been around since the 70s in New York. And if you were ever going to be put in jail at any point in your life for various things, he, he would have already been put in jail for a variety of different things over the years. And having reached that level of awareness as to just how much uh, insider trading, right? Today, what was yeah. it, 70 people from Congress were, were indicted or, or at least uh, flagged 
for potential uh, investigations inside. And, and nothing these will things come are going on all the time. Absolutely you nothing know? will come of it. No. Right. The, the reason so both parties do it. Politicians on both right. sides of the aisle, per se, do it, and that's why nothing will ever happen. So nothing will ever happen because they're looking after each other and it becomes horse trading to say, all right, well, fine, we won't take you on this because you won't do that. And, <laughs> it's, and it's negotiated away. And we're not in it. It's a club and we're not in it. Hey, I got like 15 <laughs> seconds. You got anything to say to the people out there? Let's stay in touch. We'll do it again. Anything you got to say? You got 20 seconds. 20 seconds. Oh, my goodness <laughs> me. I guess I would have to go back to self-defense. Go figure out how on earth you are going to look after you and your friends. When uh, we're facing some really serious catastrophes. When society breaks <laughs> down, be prepared, because it might happen. <laughs> Even if it doesn't, do it anyway. Yeah. All right, my friend. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great night. I enjoyed it. Speak to you later. Adios. Professor Christopher Leon Harrison. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on geopolitics. Thanks to Drowning Dog and Malatesta for the show music. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.